0: your first time wow that came on (laughs) strong if you're here and it's your first time uh, personally let me just say thank you for deciding to join us this morning we are glad that you have set aside time in your week to be obedient to the commands in the scripture not to forsake the fellowship of the Saints to come together you see as a spirit-filled believer you have a gift that god has given you the spirit of god gives gifts as he sees fit and today for our body locally to function well that requires the saints to be present because you have different gifts than i have which means that when there is a need and i lack the gift and you have the gift if you're not present there is a gap in the body but when you are present and your gift is capable of being shared with the body, we lack nothing. And this is how God has designed His church to function. We are the living stones grounded on the chief cornerstone. And our chief cornerstone is Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the Christ. And He is God. Right, Dan? Amen. We have no question about this reality this truth claim that we make is defendable it is defendable textually it is defendable historically we can look at the cosmos and we can defend the idea of God we can use the teleos and defend the argument of God we can do all of these things with confidence our hope our faith is not a pie in the sky hope it is a grounded hope and confidence of what we know God will complete because He's already inaugurated it. And He inaugurated it in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. This has been secured in His ascension and in His being seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. In the ancient Near East and in the first century, when the King was seated, business began. When Jesus was in the synagogue and he read from the scroll and he finished reading, what did he do? He sat down and then he began to exercise his authority and teach. When the king is seated and he is resting, he is reigning and ruling. And guess what? God has been resting from day seven, which means he has been ruling from day seven. Little John Walton there for you guys, if you like John Walton. Jen, I know you don't like John, but we can still, we can still do church together. <laughs> That's another thing about our church here. We're not looking for you to submit to one man's teaching. We're looking for you to be led by the Spirit of God into the truth of God. Which means that if you have a different doctrinal or theological position and it doesn't affect what we call the non-negotiables, you are welcome in this body to hold it. Because as long as you can tell us why you believe it, show us where in the Scripture it can be found, your defense for what it is that you believe, then we can encourage you to continue to pursue Christ. Okay, so I didn't schedule anyone to do announcements, so you guys are going to have to suffer through announcements with me this morning before we get into the... uh, into the service. And I made a fool of myself last week doing it. Let's see if I can avoid that this week. We want to connect with you. This is a true statement. You're not going to be able to find us on Facebook or Instagram. We're not on Snapchat. We're not on TikTok. So what you need to do if you want to connect with the body here is you just got to pull out your phone, snap the QR code on the back. It'll take you to the website where you can fill out all of your information. We will email you and we will text you You'll probably get two emails a month, max, and you'll probably get one text message a week that will notify you about the things that we do throughout the week. It's very simple for us to do things that way, and it removes distraction. Wednesday nights, we had 13 people here for our Wednesday night Bible study, which is a record, I think, for us. Um, my lack of faith, I put out, I think, eight chairs. <laughs> <laughs> when People showed up, and I was like, well, I'll get another table. Um, We just launched our Bible study in the Psalms. Dr. Sandra Richter is going to be teaching us over the next seven weeks in the eight week series. There's a handout that comes with each night's Bible study that you can take home and continue to revisit. There's a lot of crosstalk and engagement. Not one person is teaching. We're watching the video and then we're doing high engagement from table to table with everything that we learn and everything that we know and believe. Wednesday nights is also when we have our youth ministry. Can I get Josh and Marcy to stand up? They are in the back here. If you turn back and see them. I understand that parents of middle schoolers and high schoolers are busy. But I want to encourage you that if your Wednesday night is open, bring your children to meet Josh and Marcy. And parents, if you have the time this morning and you have a middle schooler or you have a high schooler, Talk to them, introduce yourself, begin the relationship so that a bridge of trust can not just be extended, but it can be built and reestablished over time as you guys grow to know one another on a deeper level. So thank you guys for your sacrifice for this church and for the next generation of believers. Our children's church ministry is growing, which means our classroom layout is changing. The preschoolers are in this back room right behind the sanctuary across from the bathrooms and the nursery. I see a lot of babies. If you have to change your baby's diaper, it's not a distraction. Just stand up, walk down this aisle, go into this door. We have a changing table. If you need to nurse, we've got big disc chairs for the moms that are nursing. If your baby is fussy and you want to take it back there, you might be able to meet another mom back there who's got a baby and you guys can just talk and hang out and commune and fellowship that way. That's perfectly fine. And you can go and come through there as freely as you need throughout the sermon. We're not going to be distracted by it. With the growth in our children's church, we need volunteers. I think it's safe to say that every church across the board needs help in their children's ministry. That's a fact. You can never have too much help. The more help you have, the less work it requires for the individual, which means instead of serving maybe every other week, they can serve once a month. We would like to get to the point where our children's church workers can serve once every couple of months, which means that if you're a parent and you have a child in our children's ministry, we would encourage you to prayerfully consider volunteering once a month, max once every other month down there just as an aid to Jade as she uh, helps us do what it is that we do. Our setup team meets here at 8: 30. They get the room set. If that's something that you would be interested in doing, talk to me. We'd love to get you on the team. Our audio team same thing. 8: 30, 8:45. They're in the back, at the soundboard. They're mixing the worship so that when we come in, everything is ready to go. We're looking for help there and we already discussed the children's ministry. There are other ways to volunteer outside of the church. If you're not keen on serving in the church on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, let me be the first to tell you that we have a great way for you to connect with the marginalized in our community. Young life and young lives. It's a once a month commitment. It's a beautiful thing. I think I've been doing it for like seven or eight months now. It took me four months to get one of my young dads to even answer my phone call. But when he answered my phone call, I was like, yes, (laughs) I'm not just leaving it at the door anymore. There's a connection now. There's a voice on the other line. And every month that I didn't have that connection, it was made worth it immediately as soon as the phone was answered. Now I get to see a couple of my dads when I get to drop the bags off. And that's even cooler. Does it matter if they come to church? That's our goal, to get them in here to sit under the teaching of the gospel. But this is a no-strings-attached ministry. There is a need in our community. And our goal is to meet the need, whether they're here or not. No-strings-attached. Once-a-month commitment. We're looking for two volunteers that will drive to the Matsu Valley once a month. There's young moms who have young babies who need diapers and formula and baby wipes and all kinds of non-perishable foods. It's as easy as calling them on your way out, saying, I'm coming, dropping it at the door, or dropping it at the door, ringing the doorbell and engaging them in conversation and maybe even praying for them if they have a prayer request. That's how seeds get planted. And that's how we're trying to build the kingdom outside of this building in our city. We're looking for two volunteers in Anchorage. It's a very easy ministry. The bags are here at church on Sunday. You pick them up. You put them in your car. There's a printout. You drive to the different addresses. You drop them off. You make the connection. You do the work of the Lord, and then you dip, and you head back home. It takes maybe an hour. If you're doing the valley, it probably takes a couple or a few. Please, uh, Celeste is seated in the back here. She's going to stand up. If you guys are interested um, in helping us with our Young Lives ministry, please talk to Celeste at the end of the service. Uh, Josh and Marcy are gonna be hosting um, an emergency prayer meeting for Ukraine this Tuesday. Uh, Ukraine is being invaded, they're being bombed by Russia. Russia wants to take back what was once theirs. Um, It's very sad. You know, I have been myself in two different war-torn countries. I did 15 months in Iraq, and I did 12 months in Afghanistan. And I can tell you that war is nothing pretty. Uh, People suffer. As Christians, we can never fall prey to the idea that we can do nothing. Prayer is our first line of offense. It's not a last resort, and it's not only supposed to be used as defense. It's an offensive measure we can intercede and advocate at the throne of God. And our encouragement via the text is to do that with boldness. So let's get together if you're free on Tuesday night. Here's the address. It's uh, 13330 Brant Way. It's on the south side of town, 730. It'll probably be an hour. It's gonna be on Tuesday evening. If you can make it, please let's get together and let's intercede for the people who are suffering in the Ukraine. At this time, I'm going, to def- uh, ex- I'm going to excuse the next offenders to go join Miss Amy. They're going to be downstairs where they're going to be working on their <laughs> apologetics. And so, while they're headed out, I am now done with the announcements. We can pray for this morning's Bible study and then we can dig in. Heavenly Father, we are humbly present with eager anticipation of what it is that you are going to accomplish this morning. And God, I ask that you would move in a mighty way this morning on the hearts and minds of all who are present. For those who put their faith in God and for those who are here that may not have made a decision yet, your spirit has the capacity to work in both in different ways. And so we ask for you to do the work that only you can accomplish while the gospel goes out in power this morning. Father, give us ears to hear, hearts that are receptive, and I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, that I would not say anything that your Spirit would not lead me to speak. And Father, if I mess up or if I fall short, I pray that those words would fall to the wayside and the things that matter would be remembered. So Lord, we submit this morning's Bible study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm excited. I had a two-week break. I owe everyone in this room a thanks for allowing my wife and I to travel to the lower 48 so that we could be there for her best friend's wedding. We are in a series currently on 1 Peter. This is Peter's first letter to the church in the diaspora in Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia. These are the five Roman provinces that Peter is writing to. As this letter is being dictated, most likely to Silvanus, with John Mark present, and then sent out. It's an encyclical letter that goes throughout the Roman provinces. Now, we've been in this study for five weeks. And this is week number six. And I'm excited because we're just going to pick it up right where we left off. Which means that we'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16 today. This is a big chunk of scripture, Siobhan would say. She would say, oh my gosh, Matt's preaching four verses. This is insane. <laughs> so, with that being said, let's turn our attention to the text. We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. The translation that we read from the, in this series is the ESV. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope Fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is an intense passage of scripture because when we read this it's like hearing the words of the master be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect what i can't do that it's not in my nature to do that and god says no 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 i can do that through you you cannot do that on your own but with me nothing is impossible This is how the Father speaks to his children. He's calling us deeper. He's saying, great, you're justified. Recognize that you will continue to be justified or sanctified until I glorify you. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. This act of grace, this hope. Right? It's not just about, I'm saved. So often as Christians, we ask one another, when did you get saved? I would say, I'm being saved. (laughs) I'm being saved. Spend five minutes with those who know me best, and they'll say, Matt needs Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. We're all there, right? God's act of grace in saving us is going to be outmatched by his act of grace when he gives us a new name, a new body, and gives us entrance into the new Jerusalem. Amen? We call it the gospel because it's good news. Like God is like, oh, I have so much more for you, son. I have so much more for you, my daughter. Do you want it? You can stand right where you are and not take another step. Or you can have so much more. Come to me. In verse 13, Now, the first thing we want to do when we look at this passage in 1 Peter in verse 13 is we want to spotlight the term, therefore. This is an important word in the New Testament. Now, before I go down the same line that Ethan did two weeks ago when he was preaching while I was in the lower 48, I'm just going to ask you, Ethan, in your sermon you covered the purpose and the function of this term in the New Testament in your sermon two weeks ago, right? So I'm just going to ask you to stand up and just give us a quick synopsis on what it is that you taught us. So I briefly covered the word therefore. Can everybody hear me in the back? Yeah. Okay. So I did a brief covering of therefore um, as a, a road sign that points to the previous passage. Um, we can't move on from this point without first reading what's before it to get the context So, I'm gonna go off my script here. Hold your breath. (laughs) Nobody gets a letter from their loved one and opens it up and goes, page one, two, three, four. Man, this person really loves me. But page one and two look boring. I'll just start on page three. You know? You're getting a letter from your dad. I had to kick your brother out of the house. It was crazy. The the, the the atmosphere in what you knew as your home is chaos. Pray for us. Pray for you. Why would you kick your loved son out of the home? Well, if I would have read page 1 and 2, maybe I would have seen that he was being a terror. That he was making bad decisions. That the bad decisions were affecting not only the mother and the father in the home, but affecting the neighborhood. And they had no choice but to do that. So they're reaching out and they're saying, Pray, but you don't read the first part. You don't have any of the context, and you're just all of a sudden angry at mom and dad for them doing the thing that they had to do. Nobody reads a letter that way. So why do we just... Hmm, what am I going to read today? Let's see. Yeah, you know what? First um, Peter. I'll skip the first twelve verses and I'll just jump into thirteen. Who does that? <laughs> We don't do it with our own letters. We definitely shouldn't do it with the writings of the apostles. (laughs) This is why we spent five weeks in the first 12 verses. Because there's so much information and meat to unpack. And we come here to eat spiritually with one another. Therefore. Therefore. Okay. So, Ethan said this term functions as a signpost. I totally agree. The hearer of Peter's original audience, the reader of Peter's current audience, is therefore instructed to recall everything that has been previously stated. It's a signal. You see therefore? Boom! Red flag. Stop! What did the author just say to me? It's going to be really important that I know that before I continue reading. So we need to set our mind on all that Peter has said in verse 1-12. through Now as I said, we spent... Five weeks working through those 12 verses. So let's just take a moment to touch on a few of the key principles, the rich theological truth claims that are made by the author in his introduction proper and in his ongoing introduction in the letter. So first, uh, let's see. Peter writes, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Amen? Amen! Amen. Amen. And this was accomplished through what? It was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a beautiful truth claim. Now we're talking about 1 Peter and we're thinking about therefore, so where do I find this in 1 Peter's letter? We can't move on until somebody gives me the answer. So if you got your Bible in your hand, open up 1 Peter and let me know where this is found. Verse 3, who said that? Nailed it. We have an inheritance, Peter writes. Our inheritance is the Lord. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's being kept in heaven for all of those who will remain loyal to the very end. Tell me, saints, where is this? Verse four. Verse 4 Amen. Those whose faith proves to be genuine in the end will receive praise, glory, and honor from God the Father, and this will take place at the revelation of Christ. They will also give. Praise, glory, and honor to God the Father. And this also will take place at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is located in verse 6 and 7. These are the great truth claims of Peter's doxological prayer of praise as he teaches us what the good news of the Gospel is. You've been reborn. It doesn't get any better than that. Oh wait, yes it does. You have a future inheritance. And that inheritance is the Lord. So whatever's going on in your life right now should not dominate how you feel or how you respond. Because your focus doesn't need to be in the present. And your focus doesn't need to be in the past. Your focus needs to be on the future inheritance that you're going to receive when Christ consummates everything. And he comes back to judge the living and the dead. That is the best moment Second, probably, I don't know, maybe even greater than the crucifixion because it will no longer be inaugurated. Death has been defeated. But when God reconciles all of the evil things in the world and he judges the righteous and the wicked, there will be no more suffering. So quite possibly from our human perspective, we could say that will be a greater act of grace than even the cross itself. It's for these reasons and others that Peter is now, starting in verse 13, confident. And hear me when I say that. He's confident to call the church to a lifestyle of holiness. What do we think about when we hear a lifestyle of holiness? Is this a lost concept on the saints in Christ Jesus? That we have been called... To a lifestyle of holiness? Notice that Peter is focused on verse 1 through 12 on reminding his audience of the great grace and the great mercy of God. And then in verse 13, he chooses to introduce exhortations to his readers on how they are to conduct their lives daily. Raise your hand if you actually believe that the Scripture is authoritative when it comes to how you should live your life. Large agreement across the room. If we close our eyes for a minute and we think about the letter-writing process, can you imagine Peter in a room with a dirt floor, probably only four walls, maybe a thatched roof, and he's pacing? There's no such thing as a desk in the first century. So you've got Sylvanus taking a knee with a tablet of wax maybe as he's scribing what it is that Peter's saying. And you got John Mark standing in the corner just watching it all take place. And Peter says to Sylvanus, bro, you can't miss this. You can't miss this. It's because. It's because of what, Peter? It's because that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope that we should desire to live as obedient children. I'm not giving them a command prior to telling them that God has regenerated them. They need to know that they have been rescued, redeemed, and reconciled before they hear the commands of Scripture. That's how God worked with Israel. He did not give them the law in Egypt He rescued them from Egypt. He redeemed them out of slavery and he reconciled them at Sinai. And then he said, now be holy as I am holy. And this is how you live a holy life. 613 commands. Anyone can do it. And when you can't do it, there's a sacrificial system in place to atone for your falling short. No problems. All of ethnic Israel is in. Yet if you don't do these things, you will be cut off from the midst of your people. Peter's got all of this in his mind when he's speaking to the church in the diaspora. He says, "It's because it's because we have an inheritance that we should break free from the passions of our former ignorance. It's because our greatest desire as spirit-filled believers, our greatest desire is what I can see, Sylvanus. I can't write that fast." What's our greatest desire, Peter? It's genuine faith. Oh, that's good, Peter. I don't even think Paul said that yet. That's good. And because genuine faith is our greatest desire, we now have a great goal. And our great goal is to be holy in all of our conduct, just as God called Israel to be holy in all of their conduct. Nothing has changed. The God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises are tried, trustworthy, and true. This is why you can be holy. Because God has made a way for you to be holy. Peter is saying in this portion of the text, Church, you must pursue holiness. And Peter offers two forms of encouragement in a single command. Now in the English, this is very difficult, okay? We're going to nerd for a moment. In the English, preparing your minds and being sober sound like commands. The $20 word is an imperative, a command in the scripture. There's only one problem. These are participles, not indicatives. And because they're participles, they're words of exhortation or encouragement. The only command in this portion of the text is to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the command here? To set your hope fully on the coming of Christ. But before he gives this indicative, this this imperative, I'm sorry, this command, he gives two more words of encouragement. Encouragement. But in the English, they just read like they're all commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's like, what is Christianity? A list of do's and don'ts? Hardly. Christianity is first and foremost a relationship. And you cannot even attempt to observe the do's and don'ts in quotations apart from being in right relationship with God. So if we look at Two forms of encouragement in a single command, it begs the question, what does the apostle mean when he writes that we are to prepare our minds for action and we are to be sober minded? You know, you get your fundamentalist Christians who are like, well, it means you can never touch beer. (laughs) That's sad. (laughs) You know, like, what? (laughs) Don't drink any wine. Why? You know, don't. Smoke, don't drink, and don't run with, and don't chew, and don't run with girls who do. Why? You know, Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, says that he's going to smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Like, what? You know, you got to love Spurgeon. So, where do we get off thinking that these commands are just some surface level fundamentalisms that? are like supposed to zap all of the joy from this life. We have to ask ourselves, what does Peter mean when he writes? It's his letter. He's writing to a different audience than us. It's to them, it's for us, but his initial thinking is not about us. It's about them. So we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean when he says prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded? And why does he offer these two forms of encouragement in the context of setting one's hope on an act of grace that is yet to come? That's what I want to ask the church universal today. Because so often everybody's like, I'm good, I'm saved. Really? Really? You're done? You crossed the finish line? when you what said a prayer <laughs> hardly it's just begun and we have so much ground to cover so often in modernity in the modern age we think of preparing our bodies for action I was just talking to Lance going on a hunt for the first time better get in shape <laughs> You know, he's like, don't worry about it. I'll be in the back cramping. I'm like, well, my back hurts. My legs are cramping today, so I'll probably be back there with you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so often, we connect the body with preparation for action. And this form of advice seems to translate rather seamlessly in our culture today, especially if we consider the athlete or the musicians. We just saw the Olympics, and we know when we watch a great musician, we're just flabbergasted. How many hours have they put in? right so this is something that translates in our culture but we have to ask is this what peter means well peter exhorts the early church to prepare their minds not their bodies now dr keener observes that in the greek this phrase can be rendered more directly as girding up the waist of your minds hold on a second the waist line of my mind who talks like that right like Yeah, the Hebrews do. I'm not Hebrew. And it's no longer an ancient Near Eastern culture, and we're definitely technologically advanced well beyond the first century. Praise God. So, what are we supposed to think when we hear set one's hope on an act of grace that is yet to come? Gird up the waste of your minds. It doesn't make sense to us, but in the mind of the Hebrew, like Susan was just saying, it would have been a very deliberately vivid word picture. It would have been a clear metaphor that they would have been like, I know exactly what Peter's talking about. You know, in the ancient Near East and in the first century, men normally wore long flowing robes. Long flowing robes. They just naturally hinder fast project and strenuous action. That's why we don't wear them anymore. Tommy and Gabby can tell us that when you step into the ring in a UFC or an AFC match, no matter if you train with a gi on in the gym, you never wear a gi in the octagon. It will be used against you because it will slow you down. It will restrict your movement. So this is the word picture for them, right? Long flowing robes hinder fast progress and strenuous action. So what did the Jewish men do? Well, around their waist, they would don a broad-fitting belt. In the event that strenuous action would be required, they would pull up and tuck in their long robe, or they would pull up and drape over the belt, their long robe, freeing their legs so that they could run and move quickly and be unhindered. So Peter's talking about not being inhibited and not being distracted from the task at hand, as he uses the metaphor prepare your minds for action now Peter is directly applying this ancient Near Eastern clothing metaphor to the way one thinks which allows us to ask a follow-on question is preparing one's mind for action and being sober minded connected and if they are we need to know how and why well on a surface level biblical scholar Paul Akdemir observes that drunken people in long garments are not well-suited for hard labor. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) That one was deep. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So yes, while the term sober originally indicated sobriety as opposed to intoxication, we need to understand that in the context of the New Testament, it denotes complete clarity of mind What is the result of complete clarity of mind? I'll tell you what one of the results is. It's good judgment. If you don't have a clear mind, it's more likely that you will lack good judgment, which is why Peter is calling you to prepare your minds for action. Ultimately, Peter is talking about a level of alertness. Isaac, like... The military teaches you to keep your head on a swivel, right? Attention to detail, right? Like they say you're supposed to watch your buddy six and that doesn't mean look at his back. That means cover him while he moves in front of you, right? Whether you're moving in a column or a wedge or a file, right? These are all things that would have been absolutely clear to the original audience. And if we pause for a moment and think about the people in our own family, these things can become clear to us as well. But we can't just blow through reading the letter so we can be like, I read the Bible today. Good to go. Love you, Lord. (laughs) Don't really care what it means. Like we need to be keenly aware of what, what, what Peter was meaning when he was writing these words. It's an alertness. Why do we need to be alert? We need to be alert in light of the imminent revelation The coming of Christ and the hostility of our adversary. Both of these are true. Peter will write later in the letter that our adversary prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. If your mindset is I'm already saved, guess what? You're the first one the lion's going to eat. Oh, but I'm elect. (laughs) Tell me how that devouring goes when he's standing with his foot on your chest, roaring, letting every creature in the area know, I just got my next meal. We cannot presume on anything. That would be pride, and God gives grace to the humble. For Peter, the cares and pressures of this life, they can be intoxicating. Everyone in this room can think immediately Of something in this world that intoxicates them and it distracts them from the glory of God it distracts them from the call that God has placed on their life and Peter says that the cares and the pressures of this life can intoxicate the Christian which means that it will distract us which is why he says be sober-minded because truly it's no different than abusing the consumption of wine this is why the metaphor works be sober-minded when you're wasted you're gonna be easy prey Be clear in your mind. Be prepared for action. These things are absolutely connected. They're synonymous with one another. And he says them in repetition, which means pay attention. The metaphors of the apostles work, and they work beautifully. At this point, it seems to me that both metaphors, preparing one's mind for action and being sober-minded, are connected in the apostle. Uh, in the apostle's mind, in the, that he uses both phrases to address and emphasize cognitive readiness. Cognitive readiness. Are you cognitively ready when you roll out of bed in the morning? It takes time to get warmed up and awake. Got to brew that coffee, right? Got to take that sip of caffeine. You gotta, we got our regiments, right? It's not like this is a status that we just... Exist in because God has justified us it's something that we must work towards constantly because he's talking about cognitive readiness we need to keep in mind our confident hope of the grace that is yet to come be present in the moment be aware of all that is going on around you be wise but don't let this distract you because you need to hold fast To the coming grace that god will extend when he returns that is how you can hold fast to your hope and rejoice in the midst of a trial peter is not doing anything new here this is not some new philosophy peter is drawing on the text of the hebrew scriptures as he communicates to his audience throughout the diaspora the diaspora is just the roman empire And specifically, it's the five Roman provinces that Peter names in this letter. Recall the words of the Lord to Moses in the Exodus narrative. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belts fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Eat it in haste. You know what you need to do to eat something in haste? You need to be prepared. How are you prepared? You put your belt on. You make sure your shoelaces are tied. And you grab your staff. This is how you exercise preparedness, Israel. The call of God for the Israelites was to be prepared. Prepared for what? God's act of divine judgment against Egypt, where the firstborn would die. And Israel would be released and allowed to leave as an entire nation with all of their belongings. To be prepared for something like this required faith in the promise of God that he was going to deliver Israel from Egypt. So just as the Israelites who left Egypt, we too are to gird up the loins of our waist, prepare our minds and leave behind our former way of life as we sojourn toward a better future. That's the command. That's the command. Set your hope on the future. You're working toward the future. Peter tells you this is how you can get there. Be cognitively ready. In the context of what Peter writes, our preparedness is directly connected to the idea that we must be ready for God's second coming in the person of Christ. This is going to be a very beautiful thing. John says it is sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach because he recognizes that there are those who will be rewarded and those who will be punished. Peter talks about this in chapter four, verse five, when he says that God will judge the living and the dead. There is agreement horizontally from one epistle to the next. The frame of mind is united. New Testament commentator Foy Valentin does a great job of interpreting what it is that Peter is saying for us as modern students of the text. When we, today, read phrases like prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded, it's Peter's way of saying collect your wits. As the bride of Christ, we are forbidden to lapse into intellectual slothness. We are forbidden as Christians to lapse into intellectual slothness. Disagree with me? Make a note. Read Psalm 119, verse 9 through 16 this week, and then let's talk. Ignorance, my brothers and sisters, is not a virtue. Ignorance is not bliss. Dullness of the mind should be considered shameful. And careless mental habits are indefensible. When we scroll on our phone more than we read God's Word, it's an indefensible act. I'm guilty. First and foremost. I'm not looking down on you. I'm telling you, I know because I do it. When we click one more episode on the Netflix and it's 2 o'clock in the morning and we got to be up at 6 and go to work. But we can't sleep. We've got to try turning off the text and opening up the Bible. Or turning off the TV and opening up the text. In the return, I wonder what it is, if I'll be alive, that I'll be doing. And I wonder if I'll be able to stand with my head held high before the Lord in that moment. The church probably now more than ever needs to be reminded of this reality. Intellectual laziness is a disgrace. No one individual can expect to act correctly unless they can first think correctly. And you cannot think correctly if you're not prepared in your mind. You cannot think correctly if you're not sober minded. No one can expect to act correctly unless one can first think correctly. Having a mind that is prepared for action, i.e. being sober-minded means having a spiritual alertness that allows one to focus on remaining faithful to God rather than succumbing to the pressures and the temptations of human nature. Can you guys read this uh, next slide for me? Or, yeah, can you guys read this out loud for me, please? Yeah. The term obedience or obedient appears three different times in chapter one. It's nearly thematic in chapter one. Tom, can you flip to 1 Peter chapter one, verse one and two? Let's see. Who's comfortable reading? Dasha, can you read... I'm going to have you read the passage that's on the screen after Tom is done. And then, Ethan, will you find chapter 1, verse 22? We'll start with Tom. Uh, Brent is going to grab the camera and get up here so that the YouTube audience can enjoy. You're right. I failed you. Notice that obedience precedes the sprinkling of Christ's blood. And remember that it was Christ's blood that ransomed us. Remember that you need to be washed in the blood to truly be justified. Obedience precedes sprinkling. Uh, Dasha, you want to? Yep. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Tom just read that this letter was written to the elect exiles in the dispersion. So Peter's writing to the church. Obedience is framed in the negative. We're about to get into this. Do not do this if you want to be obedient. It's not framed in the positive. If you want to be obedient, do this, this, and this. It's framed in the negative. We're about to get into it. But obedience is required for faithfulness to Jesus. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command? And he says, if you love me, obey my commandments. commandments." These are the words of the master. Go ahead, Ethan. Verse 22. Having purified your souls through obedience. Hmm. Like we must have some sort of responsibility in the process of sanctification. So don't just stand there and be like, God's got it. (laughs) With your feet kicked up in the recliner. Because that's not what Peter is addressing in the letter. And we're not preaching works-based righteousness. We're not. But we are highlighting the reality that obedience is necessary for those who claim to be faithful. Read the letter of James. After reading verse 14 in its greater context, I believe that it's safe to say that the Christian life is not a life of passivity. We have been called from something to something. Which implies that we are responsible to exert some sort of effort on our part. What I'm saying is, saints, we have a purpose and a function. Make disciples is one of the greater purposes and functions. Teach people to observe all that He has commanded and baptize them. There's three and that comes out of one portion of the text. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner observes that obedience is necessary for conversion. And ultimately, it cannot be separated from one's faith. What's also interesting about verse 14 is the fact that, like we just said, Peter frames it in the negative. How many parents tell your children, if you want to be obedient, don't do this? No, you normally say, don't do this. An obedient son or daughter would do this or this or this. (laughs) So maybe we could take a lesson I don't know I'm not a parent so you could correct me if I'm wrong here but I'm gonna go with if Peter says it's okay to do it this way then I'm gonna stick with Peter and y'all can do whatever you want you know (laughs) Paul didn't have any kids either so take it up with Paul (laughs) I'm just telling you what he said when we get to Paul's letters so it's interesting right a negative perspective it's not natural to us in America at least he says, you want to be obedient, you must not return to your former pagan lifestyles. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Seriously. Don't return to your former pagan lifestyles. Now, let's, let's just think about this for a moment. How radical do you think a statement like this would be in a communalistic culture that's rooted in honor and shame? think about that let's get out of our individualistic minds because that's what we are as americans we're individualists we're not communalists let's get out of pragmatism for a second let's think about what's the greater good for the community and therefore i will do those things because that's what dictates what honor is and if i don't do those things i'll be shaming not myself but everyone else and then they're gonna take care of me (laughs) How do you think a statement like this don't return to your former pagan lifestyles would go over? America today and we're individualistic let alone in this communalistic time and culture you would get cancelled I'm going to get cancelled for posting this sermon on YouTube Brent, we're going to get cancelled Your way of life, your culture, your history God says lay it down pick up your cross and get on the road behind him Ha! You can't tell me that my culture is not important. I'm not! God is! (laughs) Peter is literally saying the behavior of your ancestors, the lifestyle of your forefathers, it was dominated by desire, and desire here is nothing positive. Peter will get into this later in the letter. He says, your forefathers lived their lives in a time of ignorance. Tell your neighbor that this week and then let me know how it goes over. (laughs) Your father was a fool! (laughs) Whoa! You know, like it... These are the words of God inspired through the authors of the text. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this way of thinking was the antithesis to the fabric of society. Joel Green notes that in the household of the Roman Empire, status was achieved via conformity to conventional habits of life. You want status? Conform. Being different would most definitely be evaluated in a negative light. It could be interpreted as deviance. Roman culture also placed a high value on what was handed down from generation to generation, especially when it came to religious traditions. However, Peter's clear that these socio-religious practices must be assigned to the category of idolatry. Abandon them, he says. I don't know about you, but when I read this portion of the text, I hear Jesus all over it. The words of the master are embedded in this portion of the text. And Peter would have been present for at least 90% of what Jesus taught. So he's drawing on what the teachings of Jesus were, as well as the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. Peter seems to take the idea of obedience seriously. Do we? Do we take the idea of obedience seriously, children? Do we honor our fathers and mothers so that our lives may be long in the land that God is giving us? Are we obedient to our fathers and our mothers? How seriously do we take it when our parents say, I need you to do this? Parents should get off their high horses because they're no better than their children. And you want to know why your children act that way? Take a look in the mirror. Look, my mom and dad are sitting here in the congregation today from California. We were just talking with Martha last night about my rebellion. The seed of my rebellion was probably rooted in my mom's pride. And God had to break us both. You know how He did it? It wasn't pretty. I don't know if the text could be any clearer. Obedience to God is to resist conformity to the world. Dennis Edwards reminds us that our redemption, our redemption has been secured through the person, word, and work of Jesus Christ alone. And the work that he accomplished, it doesn't just secure us a marvelous future as believers, it provides us with the ability to live a changed lifestyle in the present. One that will ultimately exemplify obedience and humility. So children and parents, we have been given all that we need. Are we ready to take it up? Or will we decide to continue to walk in rebellion? To become a follower of Jesus means to be changed from the inside out. And this will be inevitably a, long, a lifelong journey from ignorance to enlightenment. Don't be enslaved to passions in the age of your former ignorance. Peter is now ready to move to a positive perspective of obedience as he prepares to call his loved ones to so much more. Can you guys read this next verse for me, these next two? Only now is Peter ready to move from the negative to the positive. No longer focusing on a past life dominated by sin, he's now turning to the positive perspective, which is focused and grounded in the holiness of God. If nonconformity expresses the negative duty of obedience, remember, conformity was how you achieved status in Rome, so if nonconformity expresses the negative duty of obedience... Then the positive side is to emulate the Lord Himself, the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is the standard of moral perfection. For just as He, the Lord who called you, is holy, so you must be holy in all that you do. Peter, you're crazy, bro. In everything that I do? You know how my wife and my kids and my boss make me feel sometimes? And you want me to be holy in the midst of that? Yes! You have no option. You are a spirit-filled believer. And if they are a spirit-filled believer, there's no reason for divide. You're both filled with the same spirit. That is the greatest unity. To choose to divide when you can stay united is an act of sin. God is the standard of moral perfection. William Barclay observes that To be chosen by God is to enter, not only into great privilege, but also into great responsibility. Yes, Christianity brings us great privilege. But on top of the privilege that we have, we are now responsible. For the one who has been given little and is responsible over little will be given much. It's at this point that Peter cites the ancient command at the very heart of the Hebrew religion. In the letter, or I'm sorry, in the book of Leviticus where it was God's insistence, and he's not kidding. God was insistent to his people that they must be holy because he himself is holy. But what does it mean to be holy? I always hear these preachers saying, be holy. I read the Bible and it says, be holy. It says, God is holy. What does that mean, right? How can I be something if I don't actually know what it is? Well, if you don't know what it is, the first thing you should do is be raising your hand and being like, what does that word mean? <laughs> and then we're going to be like, sit down. Because it's got a level of definitions. Some are normal and some are less Utilized but it has a range of semantic meaning. I just heard someone say it. The root of this term is to be different, most commonly referred to in the church, as set apart. When we say that God is holy, when we say that God is set apart, we're claiming that He is species unique. Think about that. It is a great way with modern language to describe God. He is species unique. There is no other God like the God of the gods. He alone is holy. Ah, He's species unique. Okay. What else do we need to understand? Well, we need to understand that God exists outside of time, space, material, and energy. He exists outside of them as we know and understand them. God alone holds the title of creator. Meaning that everything else that exists embraces the title of created. He is species unique because He is the sole creator, the source of life, the giver of breath. Think about Paul in Acts chapter 17 and Mars Hill. Therefore... Think about everything I just said. (laughs) Therefore, we may say that holiness is not something that God possesses. Rather, he himself is holy. When someone says that God possesses holiness, the response should be no. He is holy. He is the only one who is set apart Truly set apart. He is species unique. We can say that another way. We can say that the essence and nature of God is holiness. And then we can respond by saying, Is that your essence and nature? <laughs> to which everybody in the world, if they were being honest, would say, Absolutely not. He is species unique. However true this may be, we must also remember that God is in the business of redeeming, reconciling, and rescuing his precious creation. He is the great emancipator. Which means that God takes things and he takes people into his service. By proxy, he separates them from the rest of the world, making them holy, that is set apart for his purposes. Now we have to answer the question well, if God separates us and he himself is separated, if God has set us apart for his purposes, are we somehow immediately deemed holy? Yes and no. It's a yes and a no answer. Yes, in that God has actually set us apart. He has consecrated us for His work. He has given us a new function and a new purpose. No longer in the kingdom of darkness, now existing in the kingdom of His beautiful, marvelous light. But no, in the reality that we must remember that God is now, He always has been, and He always will be species unique. So even when God consecrates us and sets us apart, our level of holiness will always be distinct from His level of holiness. Why? Because He's the Creator and we're the created. So how can I be holy then? As the created, we must always remember that we will be dependent on the Creator. This is an important distinction that must never be forgotten. The evidence that this is true is located in verse 16. Since it is written. How did Jesus answer the enemy, the adversary? So it is written as a form of authoritative, like it's ascribing authority to something, right? So Peter is saying, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, Peter. So, God has elected me, He's chosen me, He's made me holy, but I need to be holy? Yes. I thought I was. You are. But you need to be holy in all that you do. That's the context that preceded this statement. The exhortation of the apostle to God's elect is that very thing: pursue what you are not. What's that? Pursue God! Well, it's true that God is set apart in His nature. He's set apart in His essence. And while it's true that God has set us apart for His purposes, we must not confuse the reality that here in First Peter, the charge of the Apostle is to be wholly devoted to God as God is wholly devoted to His Bride. He is the covenant faithful keeper. Be holy as God is holy. Be loyal to God as God is loyal to you. You cannot be perfect. I didn't bend my knee and say, Lord, I love you and because I love you, I'm going to be perfect for the rest of my life. And that should be enough to please you. No. I bowed my knee. I said, I lack any and all ability to do what it is that you require. So I am ever dependent on the work that you have accomplished. And he said, now you got it. So I'm holy? Yes, now be holy. What? Yes. On a practical level. On a practical level, in the immediate context, holiness means conforming to the ways of God Rather than the ways of the prevailing culture, you want to be faithful to God. You need to be loyal to the ways of God. Go read Leviticus. We just finished it. If you're in the year reading plan with our uh, with our Bible reading, I can't tell you how often I read, "I am the Lord your God. You shall obey all that I have said." <laughs> and if you don't, I will cut you off. Oh, okay. So obedience is pretty serious. Obedience can be. Synonymous with loyalty. God has told us how we should live Therefore we know how we should live so we must live that way Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance rather be holy in all your conduct since it is written You shall be holy for I am holy think about David David He was a worthless sinner A wicked and evil man. A murderer and adulterer. Because he was a murderer and an adulterer, he he was a thief. He took something that didn't belong to him. David was never disloyal to God. He never pursued worshiping any other God in the host of heavens. He was loyal to God alone. And every time he was confronted with the reality that he had made a mistake, he about-faced and returned to the Lord. That's what it means to be holy. Get this idea of perfection out of your head. It's being loyal to God alone. And David is the chief example. A man after God's own heart. I want to be known as a man after God's own heart. Then be loyal to God Don't be disloyal. Don't pursue the things of the world. Oh, they're going to entice you. You're a human being and you're going to fall. But the chief evidence that you belong to God is how quickly you stand up when you have fallen down. You dust yourself off. You repent and you return to God. And when you refuse to do it, our community will come to you and tell you, you're missing the mark. You need to fix yourself. God has given you the ability to fix yourself because He dwells in you and you have your Word. Make a change. We will dust you off. We will not shame you. We will put our arm under yours and we will walk you back into the family. And we will say, this person is holy. Set apart by God for His kingdom. Who are we to look down on them? Five minutes ago, I was thinking something I shouldn't have. Saying something I shouldn't have. Walking towards something I have no business walking toward. But I'm going to look at someone else and be like, ooh, I don't know. No, church. It's disgraceful. There's a man in this room right now. He and I have similar paths. I know that God justified him. I know that he was indwelt by the Spirit. But at one moment in his life, he was ensnared by the things of this world and he was overtaken. And I found myself at a table with him and his wife and my wife. Track marks in his arm. All of the things that go along with dope and the lifestyle of using dope. And the wife was saying, what do I do? I love this man. I know that he loves me. I love God. I know that he loves God. We love our children, but I cannot take this. I told him, bro, I love you. And I'm not gonna look down on you. And I'm not gonna tell you that you're not a Christian, but I am gonna tell you that because you are a Christian, you need to make a change. And that change looks like going somewhere far away from your family for a short period of time. Making a sacrifice for the greater good. And then when you are healthy and whole, returning to your family and our family. And he did that. And he's sitting in this building today. That's what grace looks like. That's what mercy looks like. We get it every moment from God. Do we extend it to others? Or do we sit in our lofty, ivory seat and cast judgment? Shame on the church if that's what they're doing. Because that is not how God treats us. Quantitative holiness versus qualitative holiness. We're going to close with this idea. If you want to quantify your holiness, you're going to make a list of do's and don'ts. You're going to check all the do's and you're going to make sure you don't check the don'ts. And you're gonna become the greatest legalist in the world. You're gonna put laws on other people that they can't re- meet and laws that you can't meet. Quantitative holiness is not the idea of God, qualitative holiness is the idea of God. We are qualitatively holy because we have been put to death in Christ. We have been raised to newness of life in Christ, and therefore we shall pursue a life like Christ's. Never forgetting that we are ever dependent on Him. Do not flip qualitative and quantitative and put quantitative before qualitative. Don't do it. When we read this portion of the text, It becomes clear. We can be holy as God is holy because He has given us the quality. Therefore, we need to pursue His qualities. And to pursue His qualities, we need to abandon the things of this world. Does it make sense? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the strength that you give to your saints in moments of weakness. Thank you for the grace, God, that you extend to us. It's my prayer this morning that we extend the same grace to others, God, that we get to from you. Mercy, Lord. I pray, Father, for great mercy, not only in my life, but that I would extend that great mercy to the lives of others, that we would extend great mercy into the lives of others. I pray, Father, that we would pursue holiness because You have given us the quality of holiness. Father, when we look to Your Word and we ask Your Spirit to change and transform us, it is more than possible. Each person in here who is filled with the Spirit of God is living proof of your work. And today, Father, we set our hearts and our minds on you as we give you glory for your work. And we say, Father, we want more. Give us the strength and the desire to pursue more. Father, we love you because you first loved us. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing and all that you will accomplish in the future. Help us, Lord, to set our hearts and minds on you. In Jesus' name, amen.